You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Amen. You may be seated. I have no idea who that mustacheless man is that just read <laughs> the scripture text. No idea where that guy came from. Okay. Uh, hey, glad you're here. If you don't know me, my name is Jordan, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and uh, super thankful you're with us. We're going to get back into this text in just a minute, but first I want to remind you that uh, during this season of Lent, we are engaging in 40 days of prayer as a church. And so if you're not participating yet with us, I just want to encourage you to grab the prayer guide that's available out in the lobby on the resource table. You also can get, get that in the digital version on our church app. Um, pray with us over the next uh, 40 days, I guess 37 days now, 36 days. Jump in and pray with us. Um, we want to see God move. We want to see God work in our day. Um, we do. I, I don't want to just go through motions in the Christian life, and I know you don't either. We want to see God work. We want to see him move in our hearts and in our homes and in this church and uh, through us in this city and among the nations. And so that's what we're doing. We have a prayer focus for each day of the week where we just are committing 30 minutes every day uh, to, the best we can, every day we can, um, to pray together that God would work in us. And so I'm just excited about that. What might God do? 40 days of us linking arms and praying together. So join us in 40 days of prayer. Okay, um, if you've been with us, we've been walking through Romans chapter 8 since the beginning of the new year. And uh, it has been really rich. I, I have been so blessed and encouraged. I hope that you have too. We have 12 verses left in our study of Romans 8. 12 verses left. We'll have three uh, today, we'll finish up next week. After we uh, finish Romans 8, we're going to uh, jump into the book of Genesis. So we'll be in Genesis all spring and through the, most of the summer. Excited about that. But these 12 verses that we have left are really, really incredible. Really incredible. There are some of the Bible's most precious and most valuable Christian truths in these verses, especially these three that we have today. Um, in these three verses, we get stunning Christian doctrine uh, regarding salvation, how it is that we are saved, how it is that God brings people out of sin and into new life through Christ. It is incredible. And I just want to say this from the onset as we start to make our way through these three verses. As we approach these things, it's important that we seek to understand. We're going to get some words, especially in verse 29 and, and 30, uh, and by, from which we get the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination. And these things are important. We ought to seek to understand them the best that we can. In fact, doctrine is important. You, you need doctrine in your life. Uh, we have doctrinal statements as a church. Doctrine is important. But one of the things I just want to say from the onset is that we ought to also be aware that there are some things about the way that God works that are just too big for us, that are just mysterious. Like, uh, in other words, if God is four-dimensional, we are merely three-dimensional, right? If God's, God's ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts, there are just some things about the mind of God and the work of God in the world that we just can't quite compute. We can get close. We can get three dimensions, but we can't quite understand all of it. And so that ought to bring us to um, this kind of, um, these kinds of things, these kinds of matters with humility, uh, with 
um, with eagerness to learn, but with an awareness that some things we just receive that we maybe can't fully understand. Uh, it, also, it also ought to, uh, this text, uh, not cause us to uh, be confused. This is not Paul's intention as he, um, as he walks us through the ways in which we are saved. Um, not to create confusion. His intention is not for us definitely to argue and debate uh, these things. Um, some people like to do that. Knowledge puffs up, and so we just want to sit around and argue and debate uh, some of these, these things and what they mean and what they don't mean, and then we end up taking these, like I heard one pastor say it this way, these beautiful flowers, these things that we're supposed to smell and admire and enjoy and marvel at, and we, we end up using them and we just start fighting with flowers, you know. Uh, this is not his intent. What is Paul's intent in Romans chapter 8? Why does he give us these incredible truths packed into a few verses? Well, it's because he wants us to have great confidence as God's people. Great confidence. So let, me, let me give you an image that I, I hope will help us. And if it doesn't, we'll just come back next week and try again. So um, <clears throat> I think this will help us. I wasn't so sure in the first service. Uh, but, you know, we'll try it again. So um, I want you to think about Romans chapter 8 is like this, in, this impenetrable house that if you are a Christian, it's this, in, this like mighty fortress that you live in, okay? This is your home, Romans chapter 8, all that we've seen. This, uh, this gospel fortress, you wake up every day, no matter where you are, no matter what's going on in your life, and this is the home that you live in. And it's almost as if when we began this six weeks ago, like Paul meets us in the foyer, in the entryway, and he's like, hey, brothers and sisters, those of you who are in Christ, by faith alone, through grace alone, come with me and let me show you around this incredible gospel home that you live in. And he says, okay, there's going to be some days that you're going to wake up as a Christian and you are going to feel like you have totally blown it. Like there's going to be days where you just really screw up. And when that day comes, come over here with me. Let's come into this room. We'll call this room Romans 8.1 and sit down and breathe and rest. Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're forgiven, brother or sister. Fully, finally, completely forgiven. And then it's, he goes, okay, and, and, then, and then come on down with me. Let's go around. Let's look around this hallway and take a left. And then there's this other room over here. This home in which you live in, this gospel fortress that you live in. And it's for the day when you feel weak, when you feel completely in over your head. Have you ever had one of those days? Completely clueless. Come take a break in this room. Come and rest. Come and lounge around for a while. And remember that the same power that, rose, that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. This room is called Romans 8, 10, and 11. And then Paul keeps going. He's taken us through this tour. He said, there's another part of the house. Let's move back here to the back. And I want to show you back here where this is a place for you on the mornings when you wake up and you look in the mirror and you hear the accusations of the enemy that you are a no good failure, that you are a complete loser, that your best days are behind you. Why don't you come on back here and come into this room and be reminded that you are a beloved son or daughter of God. I call this part of the house, Romans 8, 14 through 17. Take a seat, look around. Remember, you are God's very own child, chosen, adopted, that he's made you an heir. 
And then Paul says, hey, come around here. There's an elevator. And he opens the door. And the, the, this analogy is getting out of control. And he opens the, the, the door and the elevator's opening. You get on and he says, let's go down uh, to the bottom floor. Down here in the bottom floor, this is, this is where you can come when the winds of hardship and the waves of suffering begin to swell in your life. We call this Romans 8.18. You can hunker down here. It's a safe place to hide. It's a safe place for you to groan and to lament and to remember that what you are facing is only temporary compared to the glory that is to be revealed to you. And then last week, we looked at Romans 8.26 and 27, and it's as if Paul is showing us that there's also this sunroom in this mighty gospel house in which we live. He says, come here and see this room where the sun shines in those moments when you don't know what to pray, when you doubt and when you feel alone. The Holy Spirit is here in this room with you. He's having your back in all times. He's interceding for you. He's praying for you. Paul's been telling us there's never a moment in the Christian life when we are without God. Never a moment when we are without God. We are so secure in the gospel. We live in this place of security. And as we come to the end of Romans 8 and we get to verses 28 and 29 and 30, it's as if Paul says, there's one more place in this gospel fortress that you live that I want to show you. And we take the elevator up to the top and he says, see it from here. Take a look from here. And from the top floor, he reminds us that not only is there never a moment in the Christian life when we are without God, but there is never a moment in the Christian life, there never has been a moment in the Christian life that God is not working on our behalf. Look what he says in verse 28. He says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to to his purpose. This is one of the most familiar verses in the Bible. This is a Hobby Lobby verse. You know what I mean? <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm talking about? This, is, uh, this verse is so familiar to so many people. Um, like you could get an 899 picture frame to hang over your guest bathroom toilet with Romans 828 on it. And the problem with Hobby Lobby verses is that they can often become so familiar, they can get trivialized. They can become so familiar that we throw them out like platitudes, right? Like, like someone's life, in someone's life, like, like whether literally or figuratively, like their house could be burning down. And we, and we could throw out verses like Romans 8, 28, and we can say, hey, cheer up, buttercup. God works all things for good. And that's not very helpful. And because people do this, we can start to shy away from verses like Romans 8, 28 almost have a gag reflex to them. And what a shame that is, you know? I mean, this verse is incredible. The view from the top floor of this gospel fortress that we live in is unbelievable. You see, Romans, Romans 8.28 is not given to us to dismiss Christian suffering or to diminish it. It's given to us to deepen our resolve in the midst of suffering and in the midst of sorrows to reinforce our sufferings or our difficult circumstances with real gospel power, with real gospel hope. Paul says in verse 28, we know. He doesn't say we think. He doesn't say we hope. He doesn't say we wish. 
He says, we know with rock solid certainty, more than we know the sun will rise, more than we know that water is wet, more than we know that the Dallas Cowboys will not be in the Super Bowl. Paul says, brothers and sisters, in this gospel house in which you live, you can be certain that God always works and he's working on your behalf. I want to ask you to really think about that for a moment. Would you just personalize that for a moment, like right where you are in this station of life? Do you believe that? Have you received that truth? God is always working. He never stops working. And he works on your behalf. As we explore Romans 8.28, there really are three questions that we need to ask. And the first question is this. Who is this promise for? Is this this promise for anyone who shops at Hobby Lobby. Who is this promise for? It's, well, it's, it's clearly, Paul says, not a promise for everyone. Do you notice that in the text? It's not a promise for everyone. It's a promise for those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. That's two ways of saying the same thing. In other words, Anywhere that the church exists, there will always be three kinds of people. Track with me for a moment. Anywhere the church exists, where the gospel is, there will always be three kinds of people. The gospel is a message, and it always goes out. And there will be some who hear the message, and they reject the message. In other words, to keep working with our analogy, they decide they want to live on the other side of town. They want to build their life over there. They, don't want, they, they reject God. They dismiss his existence. I'm going to live over here. And what a sad existence that is. What, what a sad reality that is. It ought to move us in compassion and even compel us toward people. And especially in our culture, as our culture grows more post-Christian, more secular, we see more and more people who are building their house on something else, something that is shaky and something that is flimsy in a world where there is sin and death and evil that is rampant. No wonder that things like anxiety and depression and frantic fear is out of control because there's no defense. There's no shelter apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so there's those who will, who will reject God and will not look to him nor live for him. But there's also a second kind of person, and this ought to cause our ears to perk up a bit. There's others who won't all out reject God. Um, in fact, they probably intellectually believe him. They believe he exists and that he's real. They like accept that over the alternative that we are the result of like cosmic boogers that splattered together and created a world. Um, they, they say, yeah, I believe that God exists, that there's real, but, but they have not built their life upon him. They do not love him nor live for him. They have not moved in and unpacked their bags. In other words, they like to hang out in the gospel neighborhood. And Jesus talks about this, doesn't he? Matthew 5, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus talks about this in the parable of the sower, that there's some seeds that will fall in shallow soil and the cares of the world will, will uh, choke it out. This ought to cause us to think this promise is not for everyone. Who's it for? He says it's for those who have made their home in the gospel, who have moved in, who have unpacked their bags, who have been called according to his purposes, who 
love God. And we must keep in mind that if this is you, if you are in Christ this morning, it is a gift from God. It is a result of God reaching out to you and welcoming you in, God giving you eyes to see and ears to hear, and a heart that is alive. This is all the language of the Bible. God giving you eyes to see and ears to hear as he calls you and as he welcomes you into his home. 1 John 4.10 tells us not that we first loved God, but that God first loved us. This is who this promise is for. What grace. Undeserved. God reaching out. God welcoming us in. And God saying, there's, there will never be a day that you are without me. I will always be with you. And there will never be a day that I will not be working on your behalf. Which leads us to our second question. What does the text mean when it says that for those who love God, those who are called by God according to his purpose, he works all things together? What does that mean? Well, in the original language, the verb in the sentence is the word uh, synergos. And this is a word that gets translated into the English version of the Bible as works together. God works together all things. It's also where we get our English word synergy. And so think about what the text is literally saying to us. That God synergizes all things for good in your life if you, are, you love God and are called according to his purposes. He's synergizing everything in your life. This means that God's hand is, is very literally not only upon your life, but God's hand is the force behind your life. He is leading and guiding and ushering all things in your life, taking all the pieces of your life, all the circumstances of your life, all the decisions that you've made, the good ones and the bad ones. He's taking all the events of your life, the ups and the downs, and we all have both, don't we? He's taking the things in our life that we rejoice and celebrate, and a lot of times probably even pat ourselves on the back for. And he's taking the things of our lives that we lament and grieve as we live in a world of sin and death. And he's taking each of them piece by piece. He's refining your mistakes and your mishaps. He's redeeming your sorrows. He's restoring the horrible He's weaving them all together for good, like a master builder working your life toward his good and perfect will. Will you think about your life for a moment? Do you see the comfort that this is to give us? The great confidence that God is for us? Lastly, we should ask the question, probably most importantly, we should ask the question, what does Paul mean by the word good? Um, he's working all things together, weaving every detail of your life together for your good. Do you know that God has an ultimate plan and vision for your life? Do you know that? Do you believe that? God has a vision for your life. You right there, just as you are, he has a vision for your life. And did you know that his plan and his vision for your life is greater than anything that you could ever dream up or imagine? Um, God is using the ingredients of your everyday life to take you to a place that is far better than any place you would ever choose to go on your own. Um, this makes me think about uh, a tradition that we have in, in my family. Um, 
We, not always, but usually on Friday nights, our family will go out to eat somewhere. It's like our out-to-eat night. And because we're a competitive family, uh, what we do is uh, we create a restaurant bracket. And so every person in the family, there's five of us, can nominate a place that you want to, a restaurant. You nominate the restaurant. And sometimes we get real crazy and we'll do like a theme, like, hey, Mexican, you know, Mexican bracket or hamburger bracket. And, uh, and so people can, you know, the kids, everybody nominates something and we'll put them in a hat and we'll draw them out and we'll seed the restaurants at random. So you have the one seed versus, you know, the one seed gets a buy. You got two versus five and three versus four. And then each, and then we'll vote. We'll look at the matchup and we'll vote. And so every, there's five of us, so there's never a tie. And so we will vote and then, you know, you win and you go on to this round and this restaurant wins and then we have a championship and then there's the winner. So that's where we're going. We're going to dinner tonight here. You won, it won the bracket. Um, but here's what my kids do. Even on nights like this past Friday night, when it was like, guys, we haven't done this in a while. We've missed a few weeks. Like, let's go somewhere good. Like, we're going to go somewhere really good. Like, there's plenty of money in the budget, in the line item. So let's go somewhere good. Here's what my kids do. They always nominate the same old cheap, below average places to eat every time. Like, Panda Express, uh, Taco Bell, please, Dad, Taco Bell. Okay, put it on the bracket. Like, uh, Gaddy's Pizza. You know, like, this is, this is what happens. You see, their idea of good <laughs> is not so good, is it? And this is the reality with so many of us. We think, of, we think good in this life equals comfort or convenience or success or riches or notoriety Cheap, below average goods <laughs> that we seek and want. It reminds me of the words of C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory. Lewis wrote, We are half hearted creatures, fooling about with worldly pleasure and ambition, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, Lewis writes. You see, God's vision for us, for you, if you are a Christian, his vision for your life is far greater than anything you can see. It's a place he's taking you that you would never choose on your own to go. God's good for you is not merely a life of earthly comforts. Praise God. Thank God he saves us from that rubbish. God's good for you is a life of conformity to Christ. His good for you is to use all things in this life to make you more like Jesus, to draw you more and more and more closely into a relationship with the Father, to loosen your grip, actually, on the things of this world so that you can find life in his kingdom. I mean, Jesus says this, doesn't he? We, we read this uh, uh, several, uh, almost every other week when we take communion in John chapter 6. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, there is no life apart from me. And God is working everything, all of the ingredients of your life to bring this work to completion, to make you more like Jesus, more dependent upon Jesus, more in love with Jesus, more aware of Jesus. He is sovereign over you. What a savior we have. Brothers and sisters, Paul says we can be sure of this. We can know it. Life for you, if you are in Christ, is not a random mess. It's not. We don't always understand what God is doing. 
we don't always welcome what God is doing, nor are we told that he is working for our comfort, but we know that in all things he is working toward our supreme good. Paul says, brothers and sisters, when life is most uncertain, when life seems most unfair, come up here to the top floor of this fortress of the gospel that we live in and take a look. Look out, see the horizons, and remember that God is always working. In fact, he's going to go on in verse 29 and 30, and he's going to say from up here, we see the work of God in your life and for your life, stretching all the way back to eternity past and stretching all the way forward to eternity future. This is the God that you call Lord. This is the God that you call Savior, the always working God. Look what he says in verse 29 and 30. How can you be so sure? How can you be certain that God works for you always for your good? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We could spend 12 weeks mining these two verses. Um, this is what the reformers, maybe you've heard this called before, the reformers called this the golden chain of salvation. It says if Paul is again, God is up at the, at the top and he's saying, understand how God has worked in your life. There's actually been an order to it. His saving work in your life secured way back when. He hasn't stopped working now. He won't stop working tomorrow and he will keep working into the future. And he gives us five words, five important words, not words to fight over, but words to marvel at. He says, first, those who he foreknew. God foreknew you if you are in Christ. This is stunning. What does this mean? Well, in the most basic sense of the word, it means to know something beforehand. And so there are some that will say, well, of course God, he's God, right? Of course he cognitively knows everything that's going to happen. And so he knows those who uh, will receive Christ and be saved, and he knows those who will not. It's a cognitive knowing that God has. But this understanding of the word for new actually falls really short of the Bible's <laughs> intention of the word for new. All throughout the entire Bible, when the Bible uses the word know, it's not just about a cognitive intellectual understanding. When it uses the word know, someone, uh, it's talking about a, a deep care and affection. It's the same word that's used in the Old Testament that talks about a consecration of a marriage, that man and woman would know one another, an intimate care and affection. It's all over the Old Testament as God talks about his covenant relationship with Israel. That out of all the nations of the world, God chose, God knew Israel as his people, his covenant people. I want to just give you a few verses if you want to dig into this more. You could look at Psalm 116, Psalm 144.3, Hosea 13.5, Amos 3.2. There's so many of them that use this word know in this way. God knowing someone, God knowing a people. John Murray says it well. He says, 
In the Bible, no is used in a sense particularly synonymous with love. Whom he foreknew is therefore virtually equivalent to whom he foreloved. This is an incredible thought. Um, this is... Um, you, you could, this is not perfect, but you could think of, you can, we, can, we can understand it a bit in this way. There are, uh, if you're a parent or you aspire to be a parent, there are some of you that you, you have loved and love a child even before you know the child or meet the child. Are you with me? It's this, this God so loves you. He has set his love on you, marked you with his love. God is not stuck with you. God chose you. He calls you his beloved. So how can we be so sure that God is ever working for our good, even when we can't see it, even when we can't feel it? Because Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 says, before the foundations of the earth, he chose you to be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined you for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus. What a comforting, humbling doctrine. He goes on, he says, those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. His foreknowing and his foreloving means that you are destined to be conformed to Christ's likeness. If he knew you then, and he knows you now, he knows where he is taking you, and he's promised he will make you like Jesus. Slowly but surely, as it might be, he will conform you into the image of Christ. There is no dead-end road sign for you in the Christian life, in other words. He was promised he will conform you. God won't change his mind about you. And then verse 30 shows up. It's almost like verse 29 stands up and says, how can you be certain that God uh, is working for you when you're, even when your circumstances, if your life feels like it's on fire? How can you be certain God is working good for you? And verse 29 stands up and he says, well, look back here. God's always been working for you. And then verse 30 shows up. And verse 30 says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. When God called you, you answered. When God called you, you answered. When God called you, you had ears to hear. The gospel to you was good news. You had eyes to see. Jesus to you was beautiful. You saw your need for him. You saw him as the only solution. When Jesus called you, your heart leapt with love for me. You would love me. And for, for some of you, this happened in a moment. It happened in an instance. You can actually think about the moment when you heard the gospel and you had ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart that was awakened. And it was the day of your salvation. And you know that day and you know that moment. And there are for others of you who perhaps it wasn't a moment, but it was gradual over time as you grew up hearing the gospel. Little by little, you just you think about it. And you go, I've, I've, I've believed. I, I, I have faith. I trusted it. I trust Jesus. Because his call is effectual. You responded with faith. And with faith in Christ comes justification. With faith in Christ, uh, with faith in Christ, we are made right with God. 
This is what justification means. It means that God loves you. God brings you into relationship with him. It means that God will never bring up your past. God will not shame you or condemn you. Why? Because Jesus Christ really lived and he really died on a Roman cross. And it was a moment in history in which God was purchasing full and final forgiveness for those who would believe, for those who would be called and would respond in faith. In fact, Jesus said it. He said, it is finished he declares from the cross. And through the finished work of Christ, God welcomes those he calls into his home, into this gospel fortress. And I love the way that Paul gives us this fifth truth, how he finishes this. He says, he says those he justified, he glorified. You guys remember over the last few weeks, we've been talking about glorification in Romans 8 and how that is coming for us upon the return of Christ. Glory will be revealed to us. Um, uh, uh, glorified bodies and a glorified earth. What a day that will be. And I love how Paul, what Paul does here. Because remember, where, is, where, where are we? We're up on the top floor and we're looking out at God's work in our life from the past and into the future. And Paul looks at it, he says, look around, see the horizon. It's, it's in the past tense. It is accomplished. It is completed. You, uh, you're glorified. He also glorified. There's certainty here that he wants you to have. This is the view from Romans 8, 29, and 30. The view is incredible. If you have heard nothing else, hear this. Brother or sister, those of you who love God and who have been called according to his purpose, he so loves you. He's loved you. He loves you. He will always love you. He worked on your behalf. He is working on your behalf. He will always be working on your behalf. With, he is with you in every season. He is working for you in every circumstance. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, you get to live your life within this impenetrable impenetrable, it's a hard word to say, power of the gospel. What grace you've been given. What undeserved grace you've been given. What a gift, the gift of salvation. And I really wrestled with this this week. It's like, how do, how do like, what's the application? <laughs> like, this could be a 12-week sermon series. How do we apply this in one sermon? And uh, here's what I came up with, all right? You ready for this? Be confident. Not, I'm not saying boast. You, brother or sister, you can be so confident in God today. Like, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what's happening in your life. I don't know what's happening in your heart or in your mind. I don't know what you're battling or struggling with. But you, I know this, you can let your confidence in God soar this morning. You can be so confident in him. There's nothing that you're facing that he has not promised he won't see you through. And where he's taking you is beautiful and it is glorious and it is good. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing shaky. There's nothing uncertain about your life. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Let that give you great confidence today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just the beauty of your word, the truth of your word, how it leads us and guides us, how it opens our eyes to see, how it is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path, how it reorients us when we 
wander, we thank you for your word. And as we've heard your word and we now enter into a time of response, we simply pray that you would minister to us during this time. As we come to the table, that you would nourish our faith. As we take the elements and we touch them and we taste them and we smell them, that we would be reminded that you are near to us and what you've done through Jesus is real. Would you nourish our faith this morning? Would you lift us up into your presence as we gather around the table? As we sing and celebrate, would you stir our affections for you? Would you be honored and would you be glorified? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.